man of God, take a breath. Uh, based on 2 Timothy chapter 3, 10 to 17. Uh, again, that's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 17. I'll read the passage for us. Feel free to follow along along the screen or in your Bibles. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Nick Walk. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. Specifically, I help out or I oversee the youth and college groups. And for, I guess, to start off today, so another interesting fact. For those of you guys who remember this past year, I spent much of the earlier half preparing for my ordination exams. And out of these long hours of study, one of the refreshing parts for me, surprisingly enough, it was when I was studying the rich histories of the church. Specifically, to be reminded of brothers such as John Wycliffe and William Tyndale. And if you don't know who these two brothers are, don't worry. Right? Very simply, they were both involved in translating the Bible into English. And at this point, it doesn't sound that grand. After all, in the English language alone, we already have more than a hundred translations. And if we look at it more globally, there are about 2,900 translations in over 1,900 languages. That's at least the data that I've seen according to Bible.com. Once again, an effort to translate the Bible into English, it doesn't sound impressive in comparison. That is, until we begin to remember what's the context behind translation. Well, we see that since a theologian named Jerome was asked to translate the Bible into Latin, that was in 383 AD. It wasn't until about 1380 AD when an English Bible translation was attempted by John Wycliffe. Now, couple this with the fact that the Latin language as a spoken language it died out around 600 to 750 AD. Even if we use the latter number, what does that mean for us? It means that for 600 years, there hasn't been a translation of the Bible that the average person could access, let alone read. And in fact, it won't be until 1530s, another 150 years later after Wycliffe, that William Tyndale would finally publish a completed English translation of the Bible. And what made it so difficult to get an English translation? 
Well, it wasn't the fact that someone had to do the difficult work of translating. There were many people who were readily available and willing. Nor was it the fact that there was a lot of work and it was too much work to be done by the hand. Right? There was the Gutenberg Press, and there were many people who'd be willing to even write it by hand. Rather, the reason that it took so long, that it was so difficult to make an English translation, it was because during that period, the church, the Roman Catholic Church to be specific, it would not allow vulgar translations of the Word of God. That is, the Roman Catholic Church made sure that the average person could not access, let alone read, the Bible. And their worry was that someone would come up with their own interpretations. If the average person would have access to the Bible, they would corrupt the integrity of the message of the gospel. Except ironically, when we look at the church in this period, we see that the Roman Catholic Church has long since become the very thing that they sought to destroy. You see, they declared that salvation was something that you earned. They showed that sins could be forgiven if you paid a fee. And that the number of church services that you would attend would correlate to your holiness. You see, it was a broad perversion of the gospel message. All that to say it was a dark time in the church history and the light of the gospel was being blown out by the church herself. And yet it was faithful brothers like Wycliffe and Tyndale who paved the way for reformation, to live like fugitives and to die framed as heretics in order that other faithful brothers would take their place in providing the Bible into the hands of the average Christian. And why bring all of this up? Well, it's because, quite simply, the Bible, it's once again under attack. It's under threat of being locked away into the hands of professionals, into the hands of the religious elites. Except this time, it's not because of the religious authorities. They're not the ones placing the locks. We see that it's the average Christian. You see, back then in the Reformation era, the problem was that the average Christian had to fight against the church in order for the rights to own their own personal copy of the Bible, one that they could read and access. And yet when we look at the modern era, the problem is now that the average Christian fights to relinquish those very rights. And of course, none of us will say this outright. No, we're smarter than that. We don't say that my personal access to the Bible is unimportant. Instead, we'll say things like, I can't understand the Bible, so I don't read it regularly. Or we'll say things like, there's not enough time in my week to fit the Bible in. Or perhaps they'll say, if I don't get anything out of the Sunday message, I don't have any spiritual food for the rest of the week. And to be clear, I'm not denying that the Bible is difficult to read, nor that our days and weeks can be truly busy, or even that pastors aren't always effective in their preaching. These are legitimate issues. However, my point is simply this. None of these deal with the root issue. After all, these answers, they don't deal with the root issue that we just don't simply believe that the Bible is important. That the Bible is life-giving. And even as a pastor, 
it is something I have to wrestle with. It's this cold truth that I know I should be diving into the Word, but I choose something else to fill my time because it's easier, because it's more desirable. Brothers and sisters, don't worry. This isn't a you problem. This is an us problem, an everyone problem. Both believers and unbelievers alike, all people will struggle with this. But despite all this, would you take heart? This isn't a new problem for the church. It's not a new problem for the modern church to navigate. You see, the Apostle Paul, he'd addressed the same issue since the first church was formed. It's for this reason that Paul writes in verse 16, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. In other words, Paul is stating that all of Scripture is the very breath of God. It is the very Word of God. And that it is very valuable. After all, the value of Scripture is that it breeds life into our lives. More specifically, the value of Scripture is that it is God breathing life into our everyday life. And we see the ways in which God is breathing this morning. We'll be seeing just how God breathes into our everyday lives in three areas. First, in verses 10 through 13, we'll see that Scripture breeds life into spiritual parents. Second, in verses 14 to 15, we'll see that Scripture breeds life into spiritual children. And finally, in verses 16 through 17, we'll see that Scripture breeds life into a spiritual community. Again, Scripture breeds life into spiritual parents, into spiritual children, and into spiritual communities. And so we turn now to the first area of our life, how Scripture breeds life into our spiritual parenthood in verses 10 to 13. Starting in verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Let me begin this point by just emphasizing that this isn't just about parents with children. Being a spiritual parent is something we're all called to be, regardless of whether we're single, married, or even have children at all. After all, if we look at this particular relationship between Paul and Timothy, we have to remember they're not actually biologically related. Right, in fact, at the beginning of Paul's first letter to Timothy, Paul addressed Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1-2. Timothy, my true child in the faith. But how does Paul address Timothy in his second letter? We see in 2 Timothy 1-2, Paul writes to Timothy, my beloved child. Again, although Paul is not biologically Timothy's father, Paul has taken on the mantle of a spiritual father. And this, is a, this isn't a unique role or office saved for Paul alone. 
Spiritual fatherhood, spiritual motherhood, being a spiritual parent, it's a role that all Christians are called to bear and to live out. After all, in verses 10 through 11, the nine things that Timothy has seen and followed, they're not unique to Paul if we really think about it. Right? Look at the seven things in verse 10. My teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. We see that these things, these seven things, they've resulted in the two things in verse 11. My sufferings and my persecutions. And when we look at the first half of verse 12, would you look at that? We see the same pattern actually repeated and expanded. Right? Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Right? What, does that, what does that look like, actually? You see, the things in verse 10, they are being summarized in this simple statement. It's to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. And the things that are in verse 11, they're summarized as being persecuted. Except now the focus, it's shifted from Paul and Timothy to all people. In other words, the life that Paul here is modeling for Timothy as his spiritual father, it's the same model of life you and I are called to model as spiritual parents in our church today. And when we take a closer look at Paul's list, we see that he's reminding Timothy of these things not to boast, not to say, look how religious I am, or to say, look how much of a godly life I've been living. But it's to prepare his beloved spiritual son for the world he's about to face. Except this time it would be without his spiritual father. If you remember, Paul is writing this letter knowing that these might be the final days of his life. That this is it. And he needs to pour out as much as he can to Timothy. And this is what he decides to write. Notice what Paul wants to leave behind for his spiritual son. You see, Paul lists what Timothy has been following about him. In other words, Paul is giving us insight into the long relationship that they've had, that Timothy and Paul have been together for so long that Timothy would be able to know these things and immediately realize what Paul is talking about. You see, like a son would follow into his father's footsteps, Paul recounts and Timothy fills in the blanks. Therefore, right, when Paul says, you followed my teaching, you can imagine Timothy thinking, oh, that's what Paul taught from the scriptures. When Paul talks about my conduct, right, that's how Paul lived out the scripture. My aim in life, that's how Paul purposed his entire life upon the very scripture. When he talks about my, or my faith, we see that it, he's talking about Paul's loyalty to the God of the scripture. My patience, that's Paul's long-suffering towards those who are now hearers of the Scripture. My love, what Paul received and now poured out because of his relationship to the God of the Scripture. My steadfastness, it's Paul's unwillingness to compromise with Scripture. And it was this way of life that was so steeped in Scripture that resulted now in enduring persecution and suffering. Once again, brothers and sisters, whether you want to or not, 
whether you like it or not. We're all called to be spiritual parents to those around us. So there's an important question that we need to be asking. What, are you, what message are you leaving to the spiritual children around you? That is, what are you teaching the next generation of spiritual parents who are watching the things that you say, the things that you do, the things that you value most in life? And your answer will depend on how you fill in the blanks that, of these seven things that Paul points out in verse 10. Right? Fill them out for yourself. First, when, someone, when you mention your teachings, what do you often find yourself talking about to others? What's at the center of the things that you talk about? Right? The second thing, your, my conduct. What way of life do you promote to those around you? What do you say that this is the way to live? Third, your aim in life. What motivates you? Or what makes your life meaningful? Fourth, your faith. To what or to whom do you pledge your loyalty? Fifth, your patience. What are you willing to long suffer, to wait an incredible amount of time just in order to obtain? Sixth, your love. Who or what? Are you drawn to most in this life? Seventh, your steadfastness. What is the hill you're willing to die on? And depending on your answer, how you fill in these blanks, you'll either find yourself more like those in verse 12 or those in verse 13. Either you'll find yourself persecuted for living in godly life or persecuting those who seek to live a godly life. And why is it that godliness is so persecuted? Well, the answer, we can look through verse 13. These people, they're not only deceivers, they themselves are being deceived. And what's worse is that these people will continue in this downward sp spiral of deceiving one another and then being deceived and returned. And why does this cycle continue to happen. We'll notice that these evil people, they're also called imposters. And they're called imposters because they have to offer what we would call a counterfeit version of the godly life in Christ Jesus in order to suppress the truth. That is, in order to live as they please, they must now invent these counterfeit versions, not only for themselves, but they have to convince others of their authenticity. But the problem with all counterfeits is that they'll be revealed to be counterfeits. And we saw this last week. Their folly will be plain to all. Therefore, in order to keep up this farce, they need to become better with their counterfeits in order to look more and more like the original. But the problem is that it never will. You see, these imposters, they will never stop inventing new counterfeits to replace the last one that didn't work. A new fad in order to forget the last one that failed. And they'll continue to do so until they're in edible destruction. Brothers and sisters, this is the danger for you and me. If we decide to abandon our call to live as godly parents, to live godly lives in Christ Jesus, 
we are forced to move from hope to hope, to continue to find the next best thing that can satisfy that God-shaped hole in our lives with something that isn't him. And so is there any hope for these people in verse 13? Yes, there is, actually. It's the same hope for you if you found yourself living more like these imposters of verse 13. If you're tired of the deception, and instead you desire to live like the godly in verse 12. And we see it in Paul. You see, Paul, if you remember, he used to be an imposter as well. He was one who was evil. Before the Lord rescued Paul from enduring persecution and suffering, the Lord had to first rescue Paul from causing persecution and suffering. You see, there was a time when Paul was still called Saul, and he lived breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And yet the Lord, he rescued him. How? By breathing life into Paul on the road to Damascus. And the Lord, he rescued not by sight, but with his spoken word. And it's this very same word that can breathe life into your spiritual parenthood as well. You see, in order to live as spiritual parents, we don't have to figure things out from scratch. We're actually given a whole treasure trove of examples of all these other spiritual parents displayed throughout the scripture. Brothers and sisters, if you find yourself struggling to live like spiritual fathers and mothers, or you find yourself lacking as spiritual fathers and mothers, would you find more opportunities to take in the breath of the Word of God, to breathe in the Word of God? Perhaps you need a reminder that although you've been called to be a spiritual father, to be a spiritual mother, this doesn't negate, negate, uh, negate your calling to be a spiritual child. We turn to the second area of our life. We see that Scripture not only breeds life into spiritual parents, Scripture will also breed life into spiritual children in verses 14 to 15. Starting in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Interestingly, we see that verse 14, it actually stands in stark contrast to those in verse 13. You see, while evil people and imposters, they will go on from bad to worse, that is while these people will move forward and actually worsen their situation, Timothy is called to remain. You see, the Greek word here for continue, it's meno. It literally means something along the lines of abide, remain, wait. And although continue, it does capture the essence of this word. It doesn't highlight the contrast between verses 13 and 14. You see, while those in verse 13 are constantly moving forward in order to highlight the next biggest deception, Timothy He's called to remain, not to go forward, but to stay steadfast in what he has learned and has firmly believed. 
In other words, regardless of how often the opposition will change their message according to the times, Timothy, he's, he's called to preserve the message for his time instead. And on the one hand, you can imagine Paul, he needed to remind Timothy of this because the temptation to not translate but to recompose the message, it's a natural temptation. No one wants to hear a timeless truth. They'd rather look for the revamped, the newer version. We do this with music. We do this with movies. And so why wouldn't there be a desire to do it with our messages? If it doesn't look or sound quality enough for the modern times. Therefore, there's a temptation to change the message to make it fit the times. But Paul, he's not just warning Timothy about the dangers of changing the message. He's also reminding Timothy of the need for a stable message, the need for stability. After all, we don't just live in a world that longs for change. We live in a world that doesn't have a very strong foundation to build upon. There's not only so many options to choose from, there's always a need to individualize, to personalize even further. In a time of instability, where people don't know who they are, why they're living, or able to talk about anything true or stable in their lives, here comes along the stable message, the unchanging message. And the reason that Timothy should not worry about his unchanging message it's the source. We see those who taught him that message in verse 14 have not taught him a message different from what he has learned from the sacred writings in verse 15. Those who taught him, they were teaching what he has learned from his childhood from the scriptures. In other words, we see that the spiritual parents in Timothy's life, they have not been teaching him something new. They've been strengthening that which he already knew. From his childhood, he grew up reading the scriptures. And when he grew up, he didn't grow out of the scriptures. He was continually taught from the very same scriptures. And perhaps this is an area we need to question in our own lives. For parents, the question is simple. What have you been acquainting your children with since childhood? What have you been pressing into their lives as the most important thing that they're familiar with it since they were young? And let's be honest, it's not actually what we say that'll convince our children. It's actually how we live as they really learn who we are. For example, I grew up in a typical immigrant household. My parents, they pushed this dream of studying hard getting a high-paying job, and then living comfortably. And growing up, my parents constantly told me the same thing. We work hard because we want you to live comfortably one day. And yet, ironically, they've never taught me how to live comfortably, especially with the example they've shown me in their lives. You see, ironically, it's the thing that they never said, but always did that actually stuck for me. 
despite working from 6 a.m. to midnight, six days a week, I've never once seen them miss an 8 a.m. Sunday service, nor leave a Sunday night Bible study early just because they were tired, even if I wanted to. And yes, they've certainly cut down their hours over the years, but that just translated into them serving their church all the more. They worked less so that they could serve more. And in the midst of all this, they'll turn and say to me, live comfortably. Despite the fact that their lives are screaming, live for Jesus. Once again, what are you acquainting your children with? Not just with your words, but what you show and demonstrate with your lives. What you show them is the most valuable thing. And this doesn't excuse the rest of us without children. For everyone else, remember you are also a spiritual child. And you have to ask yourself the same question. What are you acquainting yourself with today? What are you pursuing as the most important thing in your life? It's not just the role and responsibility of parents, biological or spiritual, to initiate these things. We see that it's also all of our responsibilities as spiritual children to familiarize ourselves with Scripture. As much as the teaching in Scripture was placed before Timothy, even as he was a young child, it was still Timothy's responsibility to pour himself into those things. His parents, those teachers, they could provide only so much, but it was Timothy as a child to pour himself into them, to dive into them. And just like it's still Timothy's responsibility to pursue the scriptures and become wise for salvation as he worked out his faith in Christ Jesus, we see then that scripture is able to breathe life into our spiritual children as it points them to this wonderful relationship. After all, Scripture, it isn't a manual of what to do and what not to do, the do's and don'ts of life. Rather, Scripture is and always will be a letter of adoption, an official document certifying that you are certainly adopted as it reveals to you your new heavenly brother, your heavenly father, and this heavenly household. And we get to see a little bit more into that heavenly household as we turn now to see how Scripture breeds life not into spiritual parents, not only to spiritual children, but into spiritual communities, into spiritual households. We see this in verses 16 through 17. Starting in verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. As I've been kind of hinting throughout, the call for spiritual parents and spiritual children, it's for the sake of a spiritual household, a spiritual community. After all, though Paul and Timothy, they shared this special bond as father and son, their relationship was to be the natural relationship throughout the church. It was to be an example set for all those who were in the church. 
Those who are older in the church, they were called to live as spiritual fathers and mothers. Those who were younger in the church, they were called to live as spiritual brothers and sisters, that is, as spiritual children. And what better way than to transition from how Scripture was breathing life into Paul's life as a spiritual father and into how Timothy's life as a spiritual son to now how the Scripture breeds life into the spiritual community of God. In verse 16, we see that the Scriptures, they breathe life into the spiritual community by teaching us two things. It teaches us the proper creed, and the proper conduct. First, all the scripture teaches us the proper creed. What are we to believe? And as it teaches us, and it does so by teaching us the truth and rebuking us of error, how do we do this in our church? How do we live out the proper creed? Well, we practice the proper creed as we confess the teachings that we have learned and we allow others to rebuke us, to reprove us for those errors in our teaching. In other words, it's to refine one another in the words that we say, in the things that we think, in the ways in which you demonstrate. This is what Scripture teaches. But it's not just about the spiritual or proper creeds, about the things that we believe. Second, all Scripture teaches us the proper conduct, how we are to live. And we are not to divorce these two things. We see that Scripture teaches us how to live as it corrects the ways in which we once walked in the flesh and trains us now to walk according to the Spirit. And you don't do this alone. We do this with one another as we remind each other, as we rub up shoulder to shoulder as sinners and we see the old man coming back to life as we see the flesh wanting to live a little bit longer. And yet in contrast, we see how the Spirit breathes life and says, no, this is the proper way. And it's not only for us to learn and to receive, but it's to go out and teach to one another. Not only in the things that we say to one another and the things that we are corrected, but the way that we live with one another and in the ways that other people's lives correct and train us and guide us in the way to live as well. And the outcome of a proper creed and conduct, it's seen in verse 17. We see that when proper belief and proper living comes together, it completes or makes whole the man of God who is equipped for every good work no matter what God has called this individual, they are armed and ready. They're able to go out at a moment's notice to do what is good. And so who exactly is this individual? Who is the man of God? Well, we find in Scripture that there is a twofold meaning. The first meaning of the man of God, it broadly refers to all Christians or every person who belongs to God. Literally, it, it means the man or woman who is of God. What we see then is that through the life-giving scriptures, those who belong to God, they can find wholeness, completion, perfection, or maturity. In other words, apart from the scriptures, we're incomplete. There's something missing in the picture. 
as we find ourselves breathing in Scripture, it doesn't make us into something alien or some foreign entity. Rather, Scripture, as, it, as we breathe it in, it molds us into the proper image of who we are supposed to be as humans made in the image of God. Not to say that we're less human apart from Scripture, but that somehow we become even more human when we're properly united, when we're properly breathing in the Scriptures. And the second meaning, it shows us this even more clearly. You see, the man of God, it can also recall figures from the Old Testament. Men like Moses, Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, and David. Those who were called to a position of leadership as God's mouthpieces. All of whom, if we realize, they're foreshadows of the one true man of God. The one who lived giving light and life to all the lost sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father. The one who was the very Word of God, he became flesh. He became a child who grew not only in stature and age, but was found marinating in Scripture as he sat amongst the teachers of the temple, listening to them and asking them questions. The only human who was truly complete, perfect, and equipped for every good work. And yet he didn't keep it for himself, for our sake. In order to share the joys of his perfection, he'd be willing to be crucified upon a cross. And with a great cry, breathe his last. And it's that last breath that would now breathe life into you and me. You see, Jesus, he breathed his last so that you and I could finally breathe. Isn't that what Scripture teaches us? Jesus, he took our guilt and sin so that we could have his perfections. Because Jesus took our sins, we could become complete men and women of God. You see, the reason Scripture is so valuable it's not just because of the many brothers and sisters who laid down their lives in order to preserve and pass the truth. Scripture is most valuable because it is a living and breathing reminder of the breath that gave new life to the new creation. In the beginning of creation, God, he took dust and he breathed into the nostrils of man. And on the cross, Jesus he took his body and his breath, and he breathed new life into you and me. Therefore, O man of God, O woman of God, take a breath. More than the next entertainment, more than the air you breathe, would you long to breathe in the word of God? Would you finally breathe in fresh air, new life into your stagnant lives? And would you not only breathe it in for yourselves, but would you breathe it out to one another as well? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are constantly breathing into our lives, that the words you give us is living, is breathing. And surely it is the breath 
of Christ that teaches us how to live, that teaches us what to believe, that allows us to be complete, to be more than human, to finally stop breathing in the stagnant air of the world that deceives and is in turn deceived, but to breathe in the fresh life, the new life that you give to your new creation, the life that begins with Christ and Christ alone. Lord, would you help us? And for those of us who are called to live as spiritual parents, that we will be able to live out this life not trusting in our own strength, but knowing that you are breathing life into us, that we can pass it on to the next generation, that we can point them to the source of life. And would you remind us that we are all so spiritual children. Those who know nothing else tend to hear you and to receive you and to treasure you with all of our heart, mind, and soul. And would that be true of not only us as individuals or between parents and children, but for the whole household of God, that we would know how to properly behave because we know how to properly breathe in the word. And may that be the truth that is unchanging, that gives us stability in a fickle world, that shows us the light of the gospel now and forever. In the strong name of Christ, we pray. Amen.